Hi friends, I'm Momi, your host. And I'm Hina, your other host. This is a show where we unpack our trauma through movies and television. You know, like adults. We've been best friends for 10 years, so there's a lot of trauma. Every episode, we give unfiltered advice to fictional relationships, romantic, platonic, or otherwise. You get all the satisfaction of spilling tea without any of the consequences. It's like a Tumblr fever dream, circa 2009, we promise to keep our use of the terms ship and OTP to an absolute minimum. This is Parasocial. Hello, you're listening to Parasocial, your favorite podcast. This is great. How have you been? We're doing How great. have you been, Mommy? I've been good. I'm in my last two weeks before my move. Mm-hmm. I mean, we both are. But yeah. you are physically moving your house, and I am just waiting. Yeah. It's a little different. Bless. So I'm trying to keep busy. And I have a lot of family things coming up that I am trying to mentally prepare for. Yeah. We're going to keep it purposely vague because we've been talking for an hour before we started recording. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. We've already been on the phone for an hour. So, uh, and maybe one day much to rehash. We'll give you the juicy tea. Uh, yesterday, I guess the newest thing in my life other than packing is that yesterday I was in therapy at the park and I was halfway through my session and I was sitting by myself because social distancing and all of a sudden from the right side of me, this guy comes behind me because I'm sitting behind a tree. He comes around the tree and he scares me. And then I, I don't even know what to do. So I like pull off one earphone and I was like, hello, excuse <laughs> me. And he's like, hey, and he's, I think, on something. I'm not sure. Oh. But he was like, well, what are you doing? Like, you look like you're in a movie. Like, you look like you're a photo. And I'm like, I have no idea what this means. And I was like, okay, well, I'm talking to my doctor, so I have to go. Uh, Goodbye. And then he's like, oh, did I startle you? And I was like, yes, you startled me. And he's like, well, that's that's what what a real man does. What the fuck? Yeah, that's what a real man does is scare you I think he when has you're an interesting, talking to your therapist. Just, I was like, I'm busy unpacking what? my trauma and trying to realize why I'm, I have a hard time connecting with other people. And you're out here reminding me <laughs> why I can't connect with other people. So yes. please go away. I feel, like while this I, really, I feel like this really only happens to me and you. This kind of shit only happens to us. I mean, that can't be true because women are getting harassed all day, every day, but I know, probably not just... often in the therapy appointments. <laughs> true, true. Very true. But like, the, you can't make this shit up. Awful. Awful. Uh, so today, this oh, is yeah. an awful transition, but so today, <laughs> how are we going to connect this? So trauma, uh, mm. connecting with other people. You know who has a hard time connecting with other people? Dumbledore and Harry from the Harry Potter series. <laughs> smooth you know, smooth transition yeah that makes a lot of exactly sense. so today we're talking about albus and harry well albus dumbledore and harry potter specifically i'm right. sure that one day we'll probably do other harry potter relationships as time goes on don't we're really we just won't. gonna hone in we'll, we'll, oh you said don't think we won't i yeah, thought you said don't, don't think, think we, we will and i was like well I don't oh want to do no. More of them. no 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 i'm saying don't think uh, we won't because we absolutely will yeah, every combo. I mean, it's going to get a, as obscure as like Neville and Hagrid. Any <laughs> any excuse to combine them. Um, and so today we are drinking what I'm calling a lemon drop spritzer. 
because Dumbledore's favorite candy was a lemon drop. And I have been inspired by his favorite muggle candy. And this drink is a whiskey sour ginger spritzer thing. And so you mm-hmm. take the juice of a quarter of a lemon, a fourth cup of lemonade, a half cup of ginger ale, high quality ginger ale though, and then two to three shots of whiskey. I recommend three. And then you just top it up with a little sparkling lemon water and then a, a garnish of a lemon peel and a ginger root and you are good to go. Nom, nom, nom. nom it is nom. quite good. It is delicious. I do yeah. like this one. I do. It's I'm very refreshing. Like a, a clear mason jar so that you know I'm bougie. She's like grounded or whatever. <laughs> okay. So unlike our first two episodes, we're not going to go into the summary because if you are alive on planet earth, you know what Harry Potter is. If you haven't watched the books, watch the books. If you haven't read the books or if you haven't watched the movies, you know what it's about. Like you, you, still you know, know what it's about. Here's the thing is that even if you have never seen the movies or read the books, I almost said watch the books because. See, I'm starting a trend. Uh, if you've not done either, you still know how Harry Potter works. You still yeah. know that there are Hogwarts houses. You've heard the name Dumbledore before. Yeah. Like, nothing new here, okay? Yeah, you've been uh, on Tinder where people put Ravenclaw on their bio. Like, it's ex- a personality trait. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, uh, also, we're not going to grace you with the summary. Yeah, there's no need. But I did want to talk about why I chose this episode. And mm. I have I have some some very personal reasons. So, I think, like, if I took... Every book I've ever read in my life, Harry Potter is for sure the most profound, I think. Mm. I think the first book came out when I was like three or four years old. And my mom started reading it to me because I couldn't read. And because I was three, I can read now. But she started reading to me when I was three or four. And then as the books came out slowly and I started to learn how to read, I would be able to read to her little by little. So I read to her at first a sentence and then a paragraph. And then by the end, when the last book came out, I was reading her the book. So it's like this very special experience for me. And then Albus Dumbledore reminds me of my grandpa a lot. My grandpa passed away a couple of years ago. And he was also a eccentric, wise, all-knowing, powerful, but confusing, spoken riddles, long white hair, long white beard, um, this just kind of like unknowable but eccentric anti-establishment guy. Yeah. Um, and as just as like Dumbledore teaches Harry or like guides him into defeating the Dark Lord, my grandpa was really involved in Hawaiian sovereignty. And so his boogeyman uh, was the government. <laughs> and I, I relate to Harry's journey in a lot of ways. So. Yeah. The way that we're going to be looking at my, Albus like, and... Side note. Oh, sorry. Yes. What you said about reading with your mom, my mom did the same thing. So the reason why Aww. I got into books and into fiction was because my mom used to read the books to me all the time. And then it went from her reading them to me to me reading them to her. That's beautiful. I feel like if you're under the age of 25, you might have a similar story. I feel like that's... Yeah. Yeah. It was That, that was very much the thing to do. And we would go to, like, the midnight book drops at Walmart. Same. I didn't go to Walmart. I went to Barnes & Noble, but, yes, same. (laughs) 
Yeah, I uh, Walmart was all we had. So <laughs> we went to Walmart and I just remember, I think the one that I remember most clearly was The Order of the Phoenix. Mm. That book drop was crazy. Um, because I think the series was really starting to become a worldwide phenomenon versus yeah. just a like national phenomenon for the UK and the yeah. US. So that it like blew up by book five. And I just remember being in line dressed up as a oh, little cute. Hufflepuff. You had your little wizard your little wizard yeah. outfit on. Yeah. I knew I was a Hufflepuff from day one. I feel like that's pretty commendable because I don't think it was until much later that people were willing to be something other than Gryffindor. Oh, yeah. No, I was not about Gryffindor from like the get. Like I respected it and it was entertaining, but I just I knew I was a Hufflepuff. Okay, well, I'm a Gryffindor, wow. so... Yeah, well, not to, not to be all elitist about my house, but okay. I know Starting it sounded like that. That's not how I meant split. it. Okay, so, getting back to the episode. So, the way that right. we're going to be talking about Albus and Dumbledore is the story of two orphans. So, both of their parents are dead, and... Harry's parents died before he was even born, and he grows up with a family that hates Wait. him, resents him. What? Harry's parents died. Sorry. When he yes. was one. Yes. <laughs> Hold on. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> I mean, before he was aware. I meant like before he. He was a could person. Remember them. Yes, essentially. I didn't mean before he was born. I meant I was they like, died. How many Sorry. It, like, completely kills the premise of the movie, which is that he's the boy that lived. Yeah, okay. Wow. What an episode we've already got going. We're doing great. So, (laughs) rewind. Harry's parents died when he was one, and so he doesn't remember them. And so, one of the defining parts of his life is that he grows up without an adult figure that loves and cares for him. Because his aunt and uncle essentially hate him. They have him sleep under the cupboard. They mistreat him they never even take pride or ownership in his existence and so it's awful and so he never has that that parent figure in his life that is loving and tender and caring and for Dumbledore his parents don't die until later but his sister Ariana dies and he is kind of tasked with taking care of her and he's supposed to be a father figure for her but from his perspective he fails because she dies on his watch essentially and i think that that is such a defining moment for him so we have a boy that doesn't have parents who wants a parental figure to love and then you have a man who failed his what do you call it when like you you have a a steed of someone like you have a his like a guardianship over yeah his ward he failed his ward and his sister and so for harry it's almost like him being able to rewrite history and and succeed this time around. Got it. And I think through their relationship, both Harry and Dumbledore are able to heal the wounds of their past, and they have this kind of pseudo-father and son. So who is Albus Dumbledore? Uh, J.K. Rowling would have you believe that he's a gay icon. He's not, unfortunately. Would I love for him to be? Yes. But he's we not. We all would. But he's not. Yeah, a little sidebar. This is an LGBTQIA plus pro podcast emphasis on the T. So we understand that J.K. Rowling uh, is not great. We know she ain't. We're okay with the fact that she's not in the sense that we don't care. (laughs) It's irrelevant to this entire 
reasoning yes. of why we're doing tabling this, yeah. that. I just want to acknowledge that for a second. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, no, so, we're not about what she's saying. No. Okay, so Albus Dumbledore was born Albus Percival Wolfric Brian Dumbledore in 1891 to his parents Kendra and Percival, and he is the elder brother of Aberforth and Ariana Dumbledore. And of course, he's considered one of the greatest headmasters Hogwarts has ever seen, one of the most powerful mm. wizards of all time. And so I'm going to put the defining moment of his life at the death of his sister Ariana. And okay. I think that the death of his sister is the catalyst for the entire trajectory of the rest of his life. And so Ariana, when she was like six years old, she was attacked by a group of muggle boys. And in retaliation, Albus's father attacks these muggle board, these, these muggle boys, and they're sent to Azkaban. And as Dumbledore is going into Hogwarts, the kids that he's going to school with know that his father is a murderer, essentially, and they know that he's in Azkaban. So from the get-go, he's already kind of pulled aside. And Ariana, because of that experience, has so much trauma that she's no longer able to control her magic. And she's basically a ticking time right. bomb. And so the mom is taking care of her for a little while, but then in an accident that's caused by Ariana, the mother dies. And then Dumbledore has to stop all of his plans and mm -hmm. take care of Ariana. And in yeah. that process of like resenting her and feeling like he's not living up to his potential, that's when he meets Grindelwald, who's supposed to be, or who ends up being the, the second most awful wizard of all time behind Voldemort, I'd say. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, he's he's shitty. And he's pro-genocide of muggles. Yeah, I mean, I um, feel like it's hard. Dumbledore it, kinda, you know what it is? It's hard to compare the two, in my mind. To me, they are the same. Yeah. They are the same evil. I think Voldemort was just smarter about it. it. I feel weird for saying that, but Voldemort was, like, smarter about it. But anyway. Yeah continue sorry that's true i mean he was definitely more successful we could say that so i'm not saying that yeah he's yeah less bad from a spirit standpoint but he was less successful yeah and so dumbledore kind of starts getting into the dark arts which isn't really talked about in the original seven harry potter books but he was he was kind of uh he was kind of getting into it he was getting a little i don't know a little dark i suppose and his brother abiforth finds out and in a duel with Grindelwald, Grindelwald, Aberforth, and Dumbledore, Ariana is killed when she tries to intervene. But it's unclear, like, who's, like, did the curse that ended up killing her. But regardless, Dumbledore carries the trauma of blaming himself for his sister's death, essentially. And yeah. from then on, he has this really weird relationship to power. And because he's so talented, most people think that at some point he's going to take on the position of minister of magic, but he constantly rejects it. And he's trying to, in some ways, orchestrate smallness in his life because he's afraid to see power because he just doesn't trust himself. Because the last yeah. time he saw power, he got dark with Grindelwald, his sister dies. And I think that that is really his driving force from then on out. Right. He eventually finds the Elder Wand. Yep. Which is the most powerful wand in existence. Right. And he ends up also finding, well, later on in his life, he ends up finding all of the Deathly Hollows too. So he has yeah. all of these, all of this power at his fingertips, but yeah. he's very reluctant to utilize it or to grab 
to try to grasp more power through them because of this trauma. For those of you who watched Fantastic Beasts and where to find them, it is stated in there, or at least implied, that Ariana was an, ex- an obscurial, which is a wizard who cannot properly um, release or process their magic. And so what it does is it um, essentially builds up within them like a ticking time bomb, as Hina said previously. And as they get older, they get more powerful and they essentially implode with magic. Yeah. Um, and so a lot of those children die. And they die violently, usually, because they usually explode with the amount of magic that they're trying to control. So it's all, it's also really hard to take any of that seriously just because it's it's well known, right, that J.K. Rowling was just making stuff up after the fact. Oh, for and sure. She yeah. loves to believe that she has this like Tolkien level world building planning in her arsenal, and she just doesn't, which is why so much of it doesn't make sense. Yeah. But I'm I'm bringing attention to it because I know some very diehard fans would who think that is canon uh, would probably be like, why didn't you mention that? Yeah. We know. We're just yeah. saying that's not the point of that. This. It's bullshit. But we'll right. say it. Yeah. <laughs> we're saying it's bullshit, and we're also saying it's. We see it. We're just choosing not to acknowledge it's. It's. It's not what this is about. Exactly. Anyway. This is our show. So exactly. <laughs> to do a quick review, right? So. We have the moment of, I guess we have the explosive moment of Dumbledore's life, which is the death of his sister, Ariana. Then that leads to his precarious relationship with power. And then at that same time, we have Voldemort's first rise to power. And so that's when Dumbledore founds or founded the Order of the Phoenix, the original version in 1970. And he recruited a lot of his former students, including Lily and James Potter, Neville's parents, um, Mad Eye was in there, Lupin was in there. So a lot of the OG people that are in Harry Potter, they were a part of the original Order of the Phoenix. And so Voldemort hears a, I guess, half-assed prophecy in some ways. He doesn't hear the, the full prophecy. And so that prophecy says that is told by the future Professor Trelawney that there will be a boy born in July that will have the power to take down Voldemort. And so he decides that that must be Harry Potter. He goes yeah. to Lily and James Potter to their house to try to take them down, kills Lily and James, tries to kill Harry, the spell backfires, and his physical form disintegrates. And Harry from then on is known as the boy who lived. As the classic line, the boy who lived. The boy who lived. And so here... In our little summary of who are these characters, we will begin our true analysis of Harry and Dumbledore. And I think that young Harry has this idol-like perception of Dumbledore, right? He looks up to him. He is in awe of him, his power, his authority, his greatness. And he looks up to him in the way that I think a very young child looks up to a parent which is this kind of godlike, he can do no wrong, he is impenetrable, I think, when he starts at age 11 at Hogwarts, don't you think? Here's what I think. I'm not disagreeing with that, but what I also think is that it's super important to realize that up until this point, adults have never been nice to Harry. 
for Harry sure. Harry has not had a positive interaction with an adult ever, right? Because yeah. even in, so this isn't really mentioned too much in the movies, but pulling on a little bit of the information from the books, even the schools that he was going to, he was going to schools for like troubled children. Yeah. Right. And he was always seen as this very troubled, disobedient, ungrateful child. And it is easy to then assume or deduce that he's never had positive interactions with adults in his life. So when he meets Absolutely. Dumbledore, and even Hagrid too, right? Those are the first people who have bothered to treat Harry with kindness and respect, ever. Absolutely. Which is why I think the impact that Dumbledore has on him is so profound. Yes. Is the lack of adult support and love and care from age zero to, well, I mean, age one to 11. Mm-hmm. And then in combination with the context that's already around Dumbledore, right? The adults that are in his life also think that Dumbledore is the most amazing person that's ever lived. And then you add on the fact that Harry doesn't remember his parents, but Dumbledore does know his parents. And so in a lot of ways, he becomes the mediary between Harry's parents and him. He's able to tell him stories about James. He's able to tell him stories about Lily And so he's mediating this relationship with his parents. And I think in doing that becomes a parent because he he has memories that Harry doesn't have access to. Um, Here's what I'll say. And this is kind of a question, too, is knowing the trajectory of their story, right, of Harry's story and why it's so important that Harry be the one to face Voldemort in the end. Right. Being, Mm -hmm. spoiler alert, I guess, but being a horcrux, right? An unintentional horcrux for Voldemort and Voldemort needing to kill Harry himself. Right. And Dumbledore knowing that from quite early on, if not suspecting it very early on, that do you think, do you think that Dumbledore's motive for placing Harry with the Dursleys was truly... He he was motivated purely just through bringing giving him to people who were his family that weren't part of the Wizarding World, or was it maybe knowingly putting him in a space where like he would be at a disadvantage and maybe even challenged to be innately good or face hardships that he would understand that so that he would have a better chance of wanting to make the the sacrifice at the end? Is that making sense to you? Sort of, I think. Like, was it calculated? Is it? It's essentially what I'm getting at. I mean, it's certainly calculated, right? Because in Harry lived because Lily sacrificed herself for Harry, and the the power of her love shielded him. And because of the blood bond between Petunia and Lily, if Harry is living in Petunia's house, the sacrifice of his mother's love continues to protect him as long as he still calls Petunia's Mm -hmm. home his his home and so i think there's a very practical element of kind of like hiding him in a unusual space because i think one could assume that if harry survives he would be put with a magical family to protect him further and it's kind of a mislead to leave him in the middle of little winging with his muggle-born family. So I think it's it's practical in that sense. Just knowing how aware, emotionally and socially aware Dumbledore is, 
I don't think that he would make the assumption that I can shape this child's relationship to pain and courage by leaving him in an environment that I don't actually have control over, right? The experience of trauma equaling a courageous and brave boy that fights for good. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It is, it's a chance that that would happen, but I would even argue that that's highly unlikely that that would happen. And Mm. I think that Dumbledore expresses the shock and awe of Harry being so good multiple times throughout the series. And so I, I don't think that a man as smart as Dumbledore, if that was his goal, would leave him in an environment that he had so little control over. Okay. You know? Yeah, that's It's fair. a good question, though. I, I'm sure yeah, that Yeah, I just that. was wondering. I was like, damn, like, well, I think I was getting a little lost in the sauce in the sense of, like, how Dumbledore, towards the end, like, so successfully orchestrated everything yeah. in the sense of, like, it all really comes together, but... I mean that's not to discredit Harry and Harry doing the doing the work to figure out the holes Dumbledore left behind in the plan because Harry For at sure. the end has to do a lot of guessing and a lot of figuring it out on his own. You know what I mean? Yeah. So Dumbledore's plan wasn't perfect, but it was it just felt very well thought out as I mean he's smart, so there's that. But anyway, yeah. it made me think. No, and and I get the impression that I I do think that like there's this part in the book, I don't think they talk about it in the movies, but Dumbledore is having a conversation with Harry about the impact that a prophecy can have. Mm. And in a lot of ways, because the prophecy told of a child born in July, it could have either been Harry Potter or Neville Longbottom. And yeah. in Voldemort choosing Harry, he made that true. And so prophecies don't exist as law right there's still this this free will of it and harry never has to do the things that he does right like and i think that that dumbledore always knows that no and i was also saying like there's always the thing too right is that like a part of the reason why voldemort chose harry and not neville was because voldemort saw the threat almost in himself because voldemort is a half-blood and so is harry whereas neville is a pureblood yeah Well, and that's the narcissism of a psychopath, right? Is that everything is about me, right? I'm the blueprint for everything else. And so I think the the, the thing I want to highlight now is Dumbledore as a mentor and protector, but from a distance. And so at Mm. first, Dumbledore has this tendency to support Harry, but always from a veil or behind a veil. So he, he rarely wants to put his name on it. And we see that from the beginning to the end. So he leaves Harry at his aunt and uncle's house without any obvious connection to him, right? He never comes back and sees Harry or talks to Harry. He protects him from afar and orchestrates people around his aunt and uncle's house to watch out for Harry, but to never intervene or to tell Harry about himself. And in Sorcerer's Stone, right, the first book slash movie, he gives Harry the invisibility cloak that James gave him before his death. He he never signs the card, so Harry doesn't know who it's from. He asks Snape to keep an eye on Quirrell, but never tells Harry or anyone else what's going on. Then at the end of Sorcerer's Stone, Harry directly asks Dumbledore why Voldemort tried to kill me. And he has the opportunity to tell him about the prophecy, but he chooses not to because he wants to protect Harry from this pain. 
And he continues to do that throughout the books. And it's not until Order of the Phoenix that he comes clean about the prophecy and kind of the greater context that Harry is living in. But then in Chamber of Secrets, Dumbledore suspects that Voldemort may have orchestrated all these horcruxes. He doesn't know the details of how many or why or what they're in, but he still doesn't tell Harry, right? In Prisoner of Azkaban, he tells Hermione and Harry to travel back in time to save Sirius, but he doesn't tell him tell them the details or how aware he is or uh, we or always get like the Im- specifics on how to do it like right. he's like go back in time you know how to do it right like go do that you got this i feel like they're 13 like but you get the impression that he does always know what's happening oh. like he has his finger on the pulse of every situation he just never wants to basically tell harry he's looking out for him in a really active way it's kind of, it's always yeah. sneaky and sly and it from the shadows. Um, and then in Triwizard Tournament, he reconvenes the Order of the Phoenix without telling Harry. That's how the movie begins, is Harry realizing that Hermione and Ron have known about the Order of the Phoenix for some time, and they were specifically told not to tell Harry. And at the end of his life, Dumbledore will, will tell Harry that in some ways, Harry was his greatest weakness that he couldn't put the greater good before his desire for Harry to be happy and comfortable. I mean, that's why he puts off telling him about the prophecy for so long. I think. Yeah. Um, I think, um, I think you got Goblet of Fire and Order of the Phoenix mixed up. Yes, I did. But in Goblet of Fire, right. Dumbledore is still doing what you're explaining in the sense of like, he is trying to protect Harry as mu- as best as he can, but he knows that something is going on in the greater wizarding world. He knows Voldemort and his followers are up to something. And when Harry's name is put in the Goblet of Fire, Dumbledore is like, what did you do? Right? His first reaction is, did you do it, Harry? Is this you being a dumb teenager or is this something more? Right. And he's trying to not give away how much he's willing to intervene in Harry's life. Yeah. Because once everyone knows that, then Dumbledore becomes more of a significant target. And that creates, it it, it basically brings more vulnerability to Harry, right? If Dumbledore can essentially orchestrate Harry's success from the background and everyone thinks it's Harry doing a lot of these amazing, wonderful things, not to discredit Harry. He does his, he does his thing. Yeah. Right. But like the more infamy he can create around Harry, the more that Mm -hmm. almost insulates him. Yes. Because now people don't think that Harry can be used to get to Dumbledore and Dumbledore can't be used to get to Harry. If he's really honest about, about how much he loves Harry, frankly. Yeah, exactly. Um, but I think that doesn't that bring up this greater idea of is that not what it is to be a parent to put what your child needs before what they want? Absolutely. You know, um, and I yeah. think even maybe what what you need after what your child needs, because I'm sure that for Dumbledore, I do think he wanted that connection with Harry. I think he wanted yeah. to be close to Harry. And we see that in later books when he feels like he doesn't have a choice. But in a lot of ways, I think that Dumbledore was was sacrificing personally because I think he really cared about him. And I think in, 
in a lot of ways, he did see Harry as kind of the pseudo son, but he wasn't able to fully appreciate it, I think, the way that he wanted to because of that danger. Yeah, Um, I agree. It wears on Dumbledore, you know? I think in that huge blow up of a conversation at the end of the Order of the Phoenix, right? Yeah. It's clear that Dumbledore has has struggled to maintain this boundary between them because he knows that's what's best. And he breaks, right? He finally breaks and he finally is able to kind of open up to Harry about why he was doing the things he was doing mm-hmm. and how he thought that was truly what was best. But also acknowledging that Harry is now old enough to see through that illusion, right? Harry no longer sees him as like this infallible presence. Yeah. Dumbledore is now human, right? Now Dumbledore's now human. He's more vulnerable now. He makes mistakes. He isn't perfect. And Harry's realizing that. And coming to terms with that all at once. Absolutely. Which is a perfect transition because as we talked about, Books one through four, movies one through four is about Harry idolizing Dumbledore as a child idolizes a parent. And just like any parent-child relationship, at some point, that idol has to become human. And that godlike figure has to come down to earth. And the myth has to become a man. And that happens, as you mentioned, in The Order of the Phoenix. And... Harry can no longer be protected or coddled by Dumbledore. And now he's experiencing death and pain and revolution on the streets, on the ground with everybody else. He's, he's a soldier now. And as this image decays, we see this really beautiful blossoming of not a peer to peer relationship, but kind of an adult child to parent relationship. Okay. So at first Harry sees Dumbledore as infallible, right? As we've already talked about, and he's the only wizard Voldemort's afraid of and his power and prestige gives him all this credibility. And then in order of the Phoenix, as you said, the truth comes out, right? The prophecy, the intention of Harry's life that one day he will need to conquer Voldemort, we should say. And I wanted to pull on this conversation that he has in Half-Blood Prince. So after Order of the Phoenix, but in Half-Blood Prince. Um, Harry gives his remaining Felix Felicis to Ron and Hermione, and he has to go Horcrux hunting. And Hermione and Ron are really scared for him, obviously. And he says, don't worry, I'll be fine. I'll be with Dumbledore. And then a few chapters later, Dumbledore is drinking the potion. They're trying to get the Horcrux. He's in the water and he's at his weakest and most vulnerable. And Harry has up to this point only been able to apparate a few feet, right? Which is like right, in and yeah. out of existence. Yeah. And he's worried because he hasn't been able to travel far and he needs to take Dumbledore because Dumbledore is out of commission. And Dumbledore right. looks at Harry and he says... I'm not worried, Harry, I'm with you. So we have these mirroring of Harry saying that I have nothing to worry about, I'm with Dumbledore. And then we have this release of trust and and faith that Dumbledore, I think has always had in Harry, but has never told him how much he respects him as a man and as a wizard. Right, up until this point, yeah. Harry's always been the 
um, the student, the right? He's always yeah. been the pupil. And so this is a huge moment in which Harry finally realizes it's no longer his place in their relationship, right? He's no longer a student in that sense because Dumbledore is now trusting him to be his own man and to be a wizard now. Yeah. And I think, I mean, isn't that a feeling that we can all connect with the humanizing of our parent? Oh, absolutely. Especially that moment, right? When your parent finally goes, it's like, this isn't on me. This is on you. Like this is, this is your time. You've got it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I don't have to do this for you. You can do it for yourself. And it's gratifying and validating. Yeah. But it's also scary. And I think Harry in that moment is, he's equally joyous, but also terrified, right? Like he doesn't know what to do in that sense. All he knows is, is to act. And he does in that moment, he just acts, right? Yeah. I think, I think the idea of the myth becoming a man or that idol kind of coming down to earth. And I started this episode basically saying that the reason why I chose this relationship is because Dumbledore reminds me so much of my grandpa, which he does. But I really connect to the idea of not wanting that. You know, I, I, in some ways, um, your infallibility is my security blanket. And I think that there are adults where it's a joyous time when you move from the pupil to the teacher, right? I feel like I, I feel that in other relationships with adults in my life. But I think for my grandpa, it's has always been hard for me and maybe still is hard for me to see him as human. And I kind mm-hmm. of, I want the idolatry of it. And I don't think that's in every relationship as a child. But I think that there, there, are, there are sometimes those relationships where I rely on the mythology of you. And yeah. I'm actively resistant to demystifying you. Because I think the the right. fable, the story that I tell myself about your existence keeps me going. And I think that that, in so many ways, is Harry's relationship with Dumbledore. Is that your mythology keeps me going. And I think he, he resists the humanity of Dumbledore for a really long time. I think he resists it until even significantly after he dies. Well, first question. Yes, I'm listening. What was that moment for you? The moment where like you had to face that your grandpa wasn't infallible. And if this is too personal, you can obviously oh, no, no. tell me. Um but um but yeah, no, when was that moment for you where he's where he was in no longer infallible and you had to face that he was human? I don't think I've ever had that moment. Really? Yeah. But I well, yeah. I, I I should contextualize this, right? Like I'm 25 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm obviously having this meta conversation. So it's not, it's not a childlike, I've never had that moment, right? Like, I think if you were to ask yeah. a, a seven-year-old, is your dad invincible? They might even say yes from a very genuine place. Like, I, I literally don't think that, that they'll ever die. So it's, it's certainly not right. that. I think it's unfair for me to say that, like, I'm not aware of it. But I, I don't think, I don't think he's ever fallen from grace for me. And mm. I guess the question is, I don't know, it's so hard because the the comparative relationships that I have are like parents or or adults that I grew up around and I I can remember a fall from grace, right? For like more than just 
for, yeah, for all oh, distinctly a fall from grace. Yeah. Right. It doesn't mean that I don't still love them or we don't have a great relationship now, but I remember as a teen, a young adult, like this thing that I thought that you could handle or like this ownership I thought you had over this idea, concept, whatever, you have no idea what you're doing. Yeah. Like I, I'm, I'm looking to the yeah. wrong places and, mm. and that was frustrating. And then in some ways liberating because I am a human and an adult just like you and I fail. But I think for my grandpa, there's a humanity that I can see in him. But he, I think, will always be like larger than life for me. And yeah. and maybe that's still true for Harry, right? And I think I think that's why he reminds me of my grandpa so much is that it, there's these very particular people that feel larger than life, like beyond life, beyond yeah. existence. And in some ways, they're unknowable. And I'll talk about that later on as Harry questions after Dumbledore's death, did I ever know you? And I think that Dumbledore is one of those people where you can know him and also never know him. Yeah. I feel the same about my parents in the way that you saw the other adults in your life separate from your grandpa. And in, mm. in that, like, I saw their fall from grace right. very early. Yeah. So I was forced to reconcile the way that I idolized them with their humanity and their, and their flaws, really. And I was forced to face that repeatedly, actually. Yeah. And the people that I had in my life that I did idolize that never had a fall from grace were no one in my family. You know, they were teachers. They were counselors. You know, I don't think I've ever told you this, but they were your mom. Oh, and yeah, that's sweet. <laughs> Naya, if you're listening to this, shout Naya. out to Naya, my mom. Shout out to Naya. <laughs> a joy. A joy. But yeah, no, for real. That's like, those are the people who I idolize. Those are the people who, you know, were flawless to me. Not mm -hmm. in a irrational way, but right. they were just the people who I felt I could rely on to just get it right. To have the answers. To yeah. guide me in the right direction. Okay. And... I feel like books one through four, that's how I connected to Dumbledore is that it was always mm. these people who like they weren't constantly present. They weren't there for everything. But where you, when you needed them most, they they reached out their hand and suddenly everything made sense again. Yeah. So as you were saying, right, you have these people in your life. We don't need to call names, but these adult figures in your life who fell from grace really profoundly. And so you had to look for that figure, that idol, that mentor in other places. Like Harry, who didn't have that in his life, and then kind of suctioned on to Dumbledore. Not in a negative way, but he looked past some of Dumbledore's flaws, I think because he wanted him to live up to this idea so badly what is that for you? Like, do you think that the the significant fall from grace that the people who raised mm -hmm. you had in your life, has that made you overcompensate? Has that made you look for mentorship and people that were negative? I think for me, the way it manifested best was it created profound distrust in those people in my life that were 
flawed, right? And so in my parents, for example, you know, to me, they had very clear and significant falls from grace. Mm -hmm. And so to essentially counteract that because it really impacted me in a way where like, I didn't know who in my life that I could trust or believe. What I did is I put all of my trust and belief in those mentorship figures, in those people who I idolized and I thought were infallible. And at that point, whatever they said, that is what I trusted. And if my parents or those other figures in my life that I saw as flawed had a differing opinion, I was automatically not convinced, right? I was distrusting that opinion. I didn't want to hear that opinion. I would automatically not see it as worth me considering. And it took me years of my life to understand how valuable their points of view were, even if, even when they were wrong or they had flaws or they had made mistakes in the past. Yeah. And I think, I mean, that's the cyclical nature of trauma, right? Is that it always, it always comes back. It's never done. And for Harry, right, even though we have this moment of catharsis where they're Horcrux hunting and Dumbledore lays his life down on the line or lays his life in Harry's hands and trusts him so fully to get them out of the situation. And Harry has that moment of his idol becoming human and him elevating to the to the status of adult, to the status of teacher, as is Dumbledore seeing each other as peers. Even after that, as we know, Dumbledore dies at the end of Half-Blood Prince and he's killed by Severus Snape, who at the time Harry thinks has double or I guess triple crossed Dumbledore, not knowing that Dumbledore was already dying because he went hunting for Horcruxes on his own and found uh, Tom Riddle's grandfather's ring. And in it was the resurrection stone. He sees it. He's thinking about Ariana and his sister and his parents and their death. And kind of in that moment puts on the ring in that moment of weakness. And he's cursed And Snape is able to kind of relegate the poison or relegate the curse to just his one hand, but he gives him a prognosis of a year and he knows he's going to die. And he doesn't want Draco Malfoy to be responsible for his death or to fracture his soul, but he hides all of this from Harry. And so while you can evolve in your relationship with your parent, that trauma or those old habits that Dumbledore had of protecting from afar, mentoring from afar, trying to do things behind the scenes to protect Harry from the truth, it still comes back to that. Um, And I wonder if Dumbledore was even capable of doing it any other way. You know, Dumbledore could have come clean year four. Totally. And I say that from, from start to finish, like everything, prophecy, Horcrux. Yeah, I feel like he could have come clean year four because year four, Voldemort comes back. It is proven now that he was successful in Dumbledore's theory that he created Horcruxes. And because the only way he could have come back was having a Horcrux, was doing that spell uh, to reanimate his body essentially right, right? with harry's blood the bone of his with ancestor harry. yeah right yeah all of that stuff right and so he could have had a conversation with harry year four 
after everything that happened with the Triwizard Cup, after Cedric's death, after Harry witnessing that, after Harry seeing his parents for the first time, but they're ghosts because of what happened with his wand and Voldemort's yeah. wand. Right. All of that trauma, instead of having a conversation with Harry right then and coming clean about what needed to be done and what the possibilities were, Harry goes an entire summer with no contact, no right. conversations, no friends, because at this point, Voldemort understands and realizes that there could, there is absolutely a connection between Harry's mind and Voldemort's. And so he chooses then to isolate Harry further because he doesn't want Harry to see or know something about the order that could tip Voldemort off. And I feel like that's what creates such a rift in year five is because, Vol is because Dumbledore made his first mistake, in my opinion. And that was not trusting Harry to at least understand what was happening to him. The immensity of it. Yeah. Yeah, he was letting Harry figure that out on his own. And I think that was not the right move. Okay, well, let, let's talk about that. Let's talk about the idea yeah. of did I ever know you? So Dumbledore mm. dies, right? And all of this, Ooh, yes. we're, we're talking yeah. in hindsight. So he dies at the end of Half-Blood Prince, again, at the hand of Severus Snape, per the instruction of Dumbledore himself. And Harry dies, and he starts to realize part... part he starts to realize partially because of the obituary written by Elpheus Dodge that he maybe never knew Dumbledore the way that he thought that he did, right? Because almost every book closes with this really deep conversation between Harry and Dumbledore in his office, whether it's yeah. about Voldemort or his parents. Like it's, it's, mm -hmm. uh, it's kind of the closer of almost every book. And so Harry feels very close to Dumbledore. They've had a lot of life or death experiences together. But in Elpheus's yeah. Dodge, Elpheus Dodge's obituary, he talks about Dumbledore in a way that 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 feels foreign to Harry and he finds out I think for the first time that that Dumbledore had siblings or that his parents died and he didn't know yeah. any of it. And at the end of the obituary, yeah. Elpheus Dodge says this. Albus Dumbledore was never proud or vain. He could find something to value in anyone, however apparently insignificant or wretched, and I believe that his early losses endowed him with a great humanity and sympathy. I shall miss his friendship more than I can say, but my loss is as nothing compared to the wizarding world. That he was the most inspiring and the best loved of all Hogwarts headmasters cannot be in question. He died as he lived, working always for the greater good, and to his last hour— as willing to stretch out a hand to a small boy with dragon pox as he was on the day that I met him. Am I getting, am I going to cry in this episode? I think I'm going to cry. That's absurd, girl. Okay, we're going to breathe. So Why I think is that this that, hitting me? It came out how many years ago? Right, yeah, I've, I've watched it and read it a million times, but it's just as poignant as it was the first time. Yes. Um, but I think that, that Harry has this reckoning, right, about all of the things that he didn't know about Dumbledore. His, his parents, his, his sister, his brother, their shared history with Godric's Hollow, that they both have this huge connection to the ancestral land of Godric Gryffindor. The details of his feudal, 
his feud with Grindelwald and Dumbledore's involvement with the dark arts. And I mean, the list really goes on. And yeah. there's even moments, a conversation that he has with adults that were friends with Dumbledore that make comments about like, did you ever really know him? I can't believe you you don't know this basic information. Yeah. And also too, right? Like how does your understanding of the full picture of who a person is, right? Inhibit or help your ability to grieve them, right? Like how do you yeah. take what you know innately about this person when mm-hmm. they were living and reconcile that with the person they are, but like, you know what I mean? When you find out all of these parts of a person that you had no idea about, that they didn't tell you, that you had zero experience with, but you yeah. can't deny that that's part of who they were, right? That is, you can't say that it doesn't yeah. count. It absolutely does. So that, so how does that affect the way that you grieve for them? So I, I, I think I have an answer to this. Okay. And I, well, not an answer, a thought. I feel like it really is different for everyone, but I'll just talk about from my experience. So I think yeah. I mentioned at the top of this episode, right, that the 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 Dumbledore of my life was my grandpa and the Voldemort of my life was the government. <laughs> and yes. um, my grandpa was a radical activist and he was like that my whole life, but he didn't transition into really being passionate about that until his late fifties. And so my mom and my uncle were already past 18. So they have all of these memories of my grandpa really being a totally different person, being a real estate mogul, being a a canoe club member. Like he was a straight laced, professional, successful businessman. You know, he had this kind of like short cut crop hair and like a suit. (laughs) And I only know him as this like, oh, yeah, he was a handsome, a handsome man. But I only know him as this long haired, you know, Gandalf fellow. And I think it is difficult to grieve when you're in a space where everyone is grieving this one person. Right. There's so many different modalities of knowing someone. And it's difficult to accept that the person that I am grieving is different than the person that my mom is grieving. It's hard to feel connected to it all, right? Because then you really get into intricacies of like, who was the realest version of this person, right? You could argue that it was their truest form. So for my grandpa, was that this like radical activist? Like, is that his truest form? But you cannot deny that he had all of these defining moments. And I think the truth of it is that all you have is your intrinsic connection to another human being, that feeling, right? Yeah. That is really all you have. But it's 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 difficult to lean into that when everyone else is so focused on, on the goods, the works, the products of this person's life. Yeah. Yeah, it's hard. And I do think when, you know, everyone, like you said, everyone deals with grief differently. But it is easier for some people to really focus on the products of a person's life, right? What's their legacy? What did they leave behind? What did they do? And I think for me, the part that I've struggled with the most is that's not how I see grief. That's not how I deal with grief. For me, it's not anything to do with what they did. It's all to do with who they were. 
And it's also how they, how they always made me feel, I think is what I struggle with is because for me, when I'm interacting with people or, and even my friends, it's never really been about what my friends necessarily do for me. It's always yeah. about how they make me feel when I'm with them. Right. And yeah. that goes the same for my family. And so when I've lost people like my grandpa, my papap, like when I lost him, it was it wasn't what he did in his life. He was in the army. He was a decorated soldier. He was a father of eight children. You know, like wow. he was. <laughs> that's a lot of he, babies. He, that's a lot of babies. Right. Like he he raised all these kids like he transplanted from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania to Honolulu, Hawaii, like all these things, right? He did like crazy things in his life, but that's not what I care about. Like he could have just been a farmer, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? But to me, he was like the most amazing person in my life because mm -hmm. he made me feel amazing all the time. Yeah. Right. And so that, yeah, it's hard when you, when your version of grieving is so different or in such contrast to yeah. how other people are grieving the same person. Well, and I think, I think that that is the, to go on a very short tangent about our, our social relationship to death, right? We're so yeah. disconnected from it that I think it's a little bit easier to address the works, the products of someone's life than it is to start talking about who they were as a, a human, right? Their, their impact on the world from an emotional standpoint. And I think we we talk about the the goods of someone's life because I think it's just a little bit easier. I think it's a little yeah. um, more sanitized and it's mm. cleaner yeah. and it's just simpler. And there is in some ways I understand that. But I think if we were able to really connect to the idea of the cyclical life and um, death as it feels for all of us maybe we would be able to go a little bit deeper at the end. Yeah. You know? I agree. Okay. So oh. this, is, this isn't as usually, a, a, it's not as upbeat and funny of an episode as we usually do, but yeah. we're, we're, we're going. going. This is a, uh, sometimes you, you know what? They're not all going to be upbeat and funny, you know? No. You got to have, have a little bit of both. In there. Sometimes we're talking about yeah. funny serial killers and then other times we got to go deep. So yeah. we're going to close this kind of conversation about the evolution of their relationship to summarize, mm. right? This inciting yes. incident with Ariana for Dumbledore, right? Took him on a trajectory from then on that power is my enemy because I desire it too greatly. Yeah. And therefore I need to sacrifice. I need to go without even going without the love and acceptance from Harry, who also is missing this key component of his life, which is the love of a parent. And yeah. how Harry idolizes Dumbledore and then he has this fall from grace when he realizes how much Dumbledore didn't tell him and mm -hmm. how much he didn't know. Yeah. And he struggles with really owning his adulthood. And then we kind of have this full circle moment at King's Cross. Mm -hmm. And in book seven, Harry has gone out to face Dumbledore. He realizes that he's actually the accidental Horcrux that Voldemort created. And the only way for that to die is for Voldemort himself to kill Harry. And he accepts this fully. And he realizes that he's been carrying around this snitch this whole time that says, I open at the close 
and it really means that I open at the close of life. I open at the end. And he yeah. puts his lip to the snitch. It opens. It's the resurrection stone. And he's surrounded by all of his loved ones, his mom, his dad, Sirius, Lupin. And they walk with him to the end of his life. And Voldemort gives the killing curse. Harry thinks that he's died, but then he wakes up in this dreamlike version of King's Cross. And who is there but his true father in a lot of ways, yep. Dumbledore. Dumbledore. Um, and I think that that is really the full circle of any kind of child-parent relationship is that you idolize them. There's a fall from grace. There's a humanity in that and resentment of that. But if we go farther, hopefully there's the acceptance and and joy of being able to be human with your parents, to be equals. And yeah. in, in that space, Dumbledore for the first time really tells Harry about his struggles for power and he cries and wonders aloud if he's any better than Voldemort and Harry's able to kind of experience the man that is Voldemort or the, sorry, the man that is Dumbledore. <laughs> I was like, wait, hold on. Um, hold, hold on. Yeah. But he experiences think- it for the first time and like it's raw, it's, it's raw, it's truest form. Absolutely. I also questioned, I've, I've read book seven me. and I've watched the movies so many times. I've yep. lost track of how many times. But one question that I always had, and the answer for me changes a lot, but mm-hmm. a question I've always had is like, why does Harry not see Dumbledore? If like Dumbledore was such a huge presence in his life, right? And he was such a father figure to him. Why does Harry not see Dumbledore when Harry uses the Resurrection Stone? Why does he only see him once he's died and at King's Cross? Oh, I, I've always thought that like like this was the gamble that Dumbledore was making. Mm. That like I'm gonna put you through all of this, and the only person that should see you at this crossroads that I put you to answer for what's happening is me, and I will be ah. waiting for you. Okay, okay. Yeah, that like okay. this is me. Like this is me allowing first of all you to have this moment with your parents and serious. And these people that I partially blame myself for hurting, right? Because Dumbledore Mm -hmm. was supposed to be the secret keeper of Lily and James, but it ended up being Peter Pettigrew who betrayed them. He thought that that Sirius would kind of like stay out of it. And he had like kept him too long, I think, like in his office. And then he ends up dying when he goes to um, the Ministry of Magic and he ends up dying. And I think for Dumbledore, it was like, how do I be hyper accountable and and show up where I'm needed. I think like who 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 can answer for, you know, All like who that. can walk yeah. you through it, right? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I, think I, for I guess me, I've all seen isn't intentional. I've seen as two things. Number one, Dumbledore was choosing not to show himself in that moment because like you said, he was he was waiting for an opportunity where Harry could face him after the fact and have that moment of accountability. So I agree with you there, but I've also seen it as a conscious choice by Harry not to invoke him because Harry was still struggling with the choice Dumbledore essentially made for him. Uh, Because I think, at least in my opinion, the way the Resurrection Stone worked was you resurrected who you wanted, right? Like you would think of those you loved. And I think in that moment, Harry 
while Harry understood what he needed to do and even agreed with it, he was still, he had a lot of conflicted feelings about Dumbledore in that moment. So he didn't, he didn't want to see him because Dumbledore was the one who set him on this path. I respectfully disagree. <laughs> okay. Because, okay. well, I, I'm actually disagreeing fundamentally on how the resurrection stone works. Because I think that if we're really going like deep into lore, if we're talking okay. about the three brothers who are walking and then cross the bridge because they're wizards and then end up encountering death and then the, the Deathly Hollows are created. Correct. The point of death is that he is trying to trick these men into reclaiming their lives regardless, as he does with the Elder Wand and the Resurrection Stone, right? Like mm -hmm. only the, the wizard who is smart enough to ask for an invisibility cloak ends up going with him willingly at the end of his life. And I think... The, the point of the resurrection stone is that it gives you a false pretense that you are in control of the resurrection stone, which is why even when like mm. the brother who was given the resurrection stone brings back his love, right? He has this idea that he's in control of what's happening, but she ends up calcifying and hating this world because she's not meant to be in it. And I don't think that is, but, and if we even, bring in the idea that there is no spell in the wizarding world to bring back the dead. I think that the dead have a lot of autonomy. And I think that that's mm. why all of the dead that have ever approached Harry were really at peace, right? He was never, I mean, he didn't even bring back Cedric Diggory. It's because it's not about you needing to rehash your issues. Because I think for Harry, knowing right. how he is, if it was his choice, regardless of how he was feeling about Dumbledore, he would have called him up because Harry is not someone to be like, oh, I'm not ready <laughs> okay. to face and, it. But you know? I feel like, okay, I do feel like, though, I do feel like it's both. I feel like it's almost both. It's the dead have an autonomy and you also are calling those who you, you're also, you have agency in who you call to you, but the dead also have agency in whether or not they show up. So I think it might be both. Because the hard part I, is that there's really no information. There, that is true. That's the hard part. But I do think in just in like the, the even in the story of the three brothers, even the brother who, who got the resurrection stone, I feel like if what you're saying is true, then it's very possible that it wouldn't have been, just been his love who showed up. It's very possible that he could have also called other people there, too. Yeah, I feel like I it could be there's both. also like a lot of connections with. Like, it's unclear totally why Harry's parents showed up when his wand connected with Voldemort's. I mean, now we're getting into, like, the plot holes of J.K. Rowling, right? Like This is true. I mean, um, the way that and she, I don't think she ever that, flushes that out. The way that it's rationalized in the book is that those were the last... Basically, in Harry's wand connecting with Voldemort's in that way, what happened is it forced Harry uh, Voldemort's wand to release the last people that were killed by that wand that were using that same spell so essentially it forced his wand to like regurgitate what he had done last and up until that point because he was in spirit form as a horcrux he the last technically the last people he had killed were cedric james and lily is that so in the book why. or is that is that after J.K. Rowling explanation, I don't think that that's in the book. It's in book four. That it's how arbitrarily Harry, it's how the last. It's three that spells. last conversation between Harry and Dumbledore. 
And he says specifically it's the last three spells for some it's reason. Like it's like the three. it's basically because it's the last three times Voldemort used that specific spell. Avada Kedavra. Hmm. Yeah. Now we're gonna I mean Now we have to look it up. But yeah, no, I mean that yeah. I mean that's I, what, that's what I, I, I know. Could I be wrong? I could sure. be, but that's Fair what enough. I know to be true. I think what I'll say is that I mean, if we're really going to go like act one, act two, act three, there is a literary reason why Dumbledore would be only at King's Cross and that it would be strange for him to walk with Harry and then be like, hey, I'm here. Right. Like when you leave a party with a friend and you're like, "Okay, bye. And then you walk the same direction. It would be the same like narrative thing. So I, I don't imagine that it in all actuality was anything more than just that. Like, it is strange to be with someone and then be like, hey, what's up again? Right. Um, I also think, too, it's giving it's giving the reader, as well as Harry, a chance to marinate on the the huge plot bomb that was just thrown. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it wasn't even thrown directly. It was thrown in such an indirect way. Yeah. Through Snape, of all people. Right. And then also, I mean, this is another a debate for another time, but like also then trying to make Snape into this redeemable person. Yeah. You know, it's doing two things at once, right? So like I can see from like a narrative perspective how it would make sense to keep Dumbledore out of that resurrection stone moment. And well, then, like to- it, he would waste his moment with his parents asking Dumbledore what's happening. True. And he could yeah, just yeah, be yeah. with his parents and because Dumbledore wasn't sure that True. it would happen like that. Right. Yeah. You know, Dumbledore he wasn't confident. Wasn't hun- yeah. 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 Well, okay. Well, that has been the relationship of Harry, James Potter and Albus Dumbledore. The. Yeah. Orphans who found each other, who healed their past, who re-traumatized themselves and Correct. then came full circle. <laughs> Yeah, I, I mean, this, a is, a, this is a down. fun story to put together. Yes, it was. I have one question written down that I'm just wondering if there is an answer for or I don't know. I just have it um, with your best shot. OK, away. OK, all right. <laughs> Sorry. In the framework of their relationship. Uh huh. What is the significance of Harry destroying the Elder One at the end of the book, at the end of book seven? Okay, so I think for Harry, he has, just like Dumbledore in a lot of ways, had this really mm-hmm. precarious relationship with power and the people that want it and why you want it. And because Harry has just defeated the worst dark wizard of all time, basically with his wits and people that love him, I think he starts to see the cracks in what is a classic definition of power, especially because the only reason that he's alive is because his mother protected him with her love. And I think he, he really grasps how power from a classic sense has nothing to do with the efficacy of a plan, with the sustainability of a connection, with the integrity of a human being and i think he really gets that and in him breaking the elder wand i think is his way of 
halting the cycle of trauma. Okay. Yeah, you always have a great answer to this kind of question. <laughs> Thank you. So I love asking them. But you know what I mean? Like, what a, what a, oh, like, no, sometimes absolutely. you need to have, I like, agree. visual. Like, that's kind of, yeah, that was kind of what I was thinking, too. Is that, like, it was a good, like, culmination of all of the lessons that Dumbledore was trying to teach Harry from his own life. Yeah. You know what I mean? It was, a, it was like, almost like Harry saying, I get it. You, you got me to understand. I... I know what the right thing to do is. And I think we're really going to beautiful moment circle back to this whole thing is like, what a way to honor Dumbledore is that I will take everything that you've, that you taught me and I will go one step further. Yeah. I will go where you couldn't. Yeah. Yeah. He's like, I'm yeah. Ah, Glorious. What an emotional Ah, episode. Truly. Are we ready for our segment? We are ready for our segment. I'm excited for this segment, actually. Beautiful. Okay. Welcome to Love Languages, a segment where Hina and I take a look at which love language or languages we think each character would identify with and why. Hina will start with her choices and reasoning, and then I'll take a stab at it. Just let me refresh us all on what the five love languages are. So first one is words of affirmation. This love language is about expressing affection through spoken words, praise, or appreciation. So people enjoy like kind words and encouragement, cutie quotes. Yeah, like, <laughs> oh, you look so gorgeous today. <laughs> um, things like that. Second one is quality time. Uh, love and affection are expressed through this when someone gives someone their undivided attention. So this means putting down your phone, turning off the tablet, the TV, making eye contact, actively listening, um, really just spending that quality time with that person doing whatever it is. It could be cuddling. It could be watching a movie. It could be having a drink on the beach, whatever that is. Uh, Next one is a lot of people's favorite one, which is physical touch. Uh, So this is... (laughs) You're projecting. I'm projecting. Oh my god. <laughs> physical touch. So this is aside from sex, let me be clear. Aside from sex, it's physical touch as their primary love language. Feel loved when their partner shows physical affection in some way, like holding their hand, touching their arm, giving them a massage, hugging them, those kinds of things. Acts of service. When someone's primary love language is when they feel loved and appreciated when people do nice things for them. So it's helping with the dishes, putting gas in the car, little little acts of service like making dinner one night or dropping things off to them. Just those, those little things that people do. Last one is receiving gifts. So person whose love language is receiving gifts, gift giving is in symbolic of love and affection in their mind. So they treasure not only the gift itself, but the time and effort the gift giver put into it. So it's the thought that counts for these people, like times 10. <laughs> and so they also love giving gifts in return. So that, that's a little bit of a part. That's part of it, too. Uh, so I Hina, yeah, what were your choices? OK, so I'm going to go on a tangent, but it's relevant. OK, so. So I've been talking to my therapist for like seven months or so, but I've always been, even prior to me working with my therapist, I've always been really interested in 
like attachment styles and why it makes us operate the way that we do. And I just love to psychoanalyze myself. It's the best thing ever. Um, I can't help myself. So it is a hobby for her. Yeah. So for, I'm not going to go like too deep into it, but essentially the way that we were raised impacts how we attach to other human beings after our childhood. So if you had parents that loved you and paid attention to you and it was like a non-hostile environment and everything was nice and okie dokie, you're securely attached. Good for you. If you didn't have that environment, it sounds hostile. I don't mean it like that. If you didn't have, if you didn't have that experience, it means that you're insecurely attached, which can manifest in a bunch of ways. Like sometimes you can be preoccupied, Mm -hmm. which means that you are, you attach in a way that's overwhelming. Like these people are kind of clingy and Mm. because you're insecure about people loving you or being there for you, you just like suction onto people because you're afraid they're going to go. You have disorganized people who are extremes. Like on, on one hand, you deeply want people to connect. So you're clingy and then you freak out. So then you push people away. So it's like disorganized. It's both. And Um, And then the other way is avoidant, which is uh, what I am, which is these people are, it doesn't mean they like, obviously it doesn't mean that they can't have connections with people or friendships with people, but you're just hyper independent and you just want to do things on your own and you don't really ask people for help and you process people wanting to be emotionally close as clinginess. So someone could just say like, oh, I just like need a little bit of support. And you're like, God, why are you so annoying? You know, mm. um, and you suppress negative memories. And so I'm going to make the assertion that both Dumbledore and Harry are in, are insecurely attached and they're both avoidant. They have avoidance um, attachment styles, both okay. because they have an absence of parents. Their parents are dead. They're estranged from their family. Their families resent them and they have anger towards them because they blame them for things that were actually out of their control. They grow up in a world that awes and fawns at them, but doesn't actually mm. accept them. They're always yeah. outsiders. So they have a desire to connect like anyone else, but their way of coping is to try to be independent, to try to do things on their own. They love people, but they are maybe overly eager to sacrifice themselves, right? Because they see themselves as this autonomous person. They yeah. have a hard time deeply relying on people and expressing their feelings. And so because of that, both Harry and Dumbledore, one of their uh, love languages is acts of service. Mm. Because it's easier to... It's easier if you're avoidant, it's just easier to do things for someone than it is to like go into all the reasons of why or to like even be overly supportive. It's like, I love you by doing. I love you by action because in my experience or Harry's experience or Dumbledore's experience, to make promises or to say I'm going to be there means absolutely nothing, right? Like, yeah. So all that matters is action. And so I love you by sacrificing for you, by, by acting on your behalf. They diverge on what I think is their second love language. I think that Dumbledore's is words of affirmation. I think that Dumbledore was a wordsmith. He loved using poetic language. He loved yeah. inspirational speeches. That's kind of how he uplifted people. There's this moment when Harry emerges from the Chamber of Secret and Secrets and he expresses concern to Dumbledore 
about like the similarities that he sees, the obvious ones between him and Voldemort, yeah. right? The parcel tongue. I mean, it just goes, the list goes on. Yeah. And Dumbledore absolutely. says, it's our choices, Harry, that show us who we truly are far more than our abilities. And Harry thinks back to that multiple times. And then in the Half-Blood Prince, Dumbledore tells Harry, you are protected in short by your ability to love, said Dumbledore loudly. The only protection that can possibly work against the lure of power like Voldemort's in spite of all the temptation you have endured, all the suffering, you remain pure of heart, just as pure as you were at the age of 11. When you stared into the mirror that reflected your heart's desire and it showed you only the way to thwart Voldemort, and not immortality or riches. Harry, have you any idea how few wizards could have seen what you saw in that mirror? Voldemort should have known then what he was dealing with, but he did not. But he knows it now. You have flitted into Lord Voldemort's mind without damage to yourself, but he cannot possess you without enduring mortal agony, as he discovered in the ministry. I do not think he understands why, Harry, but then, he was in such a hurry to mutilate his own soul, he never paused to understand the, the incomparable power of a soul that is untarnished and whole. Um, okay. All and right. the one, the, the other love language of Harry is quality time. And I think that's hmm. because growing up, Harry didn't experience anyone enjoying his presence or wanting to be near him out of choice. And so when he meets Ron and Hermione, that totally changes. And he loves spending time with the Weasleys at their home, just being surrounded by people who are joyous about his presence. And so when he and Ron have a falling out in book four, and when Dumbledore is ignoring him in book five, it has like a deep impact on him because he measures how much someone loves him and just their desire to be present with him. And that's, uh, that's what I got for you. Okay. I love how this is like my segment and uh you're you're dropping quotes on me and I don't This has have been quotes. Poetry oh hour. Oh my god. With I should I should have known better. I should have known better. <laughs> Jesus, Mary Angela. Okay. Uh, so <laughs> I mean to be I, fair, I did choose this episode. It wasn't for no reason. <laughs> I know. I Queen, I know. Okay, so here are mine. Number 1. I agree that acts of service are both of their love languages. I think it is very clear throughout all of the books and all of the movies that that is how they consider love being shown, proven, etc. Mm, so yeah. I think not I'm not or being real. Like, yeah, I guess or even be being like genuine, right? Being mm-hmm. sincere in how you love someone means you do these things. Yeah. Right? And so that is that is super clear to me. We're not going to ha- we don't need to rehash that. What I think their second love languages are, I I have a I'm curious I have like about this. Ones. Yeah, so yeah, okay. for Harry, I actually think it's gifts. Really? Receiving gifts. Yeah, no, I do. And it's okay. because it's because of the way in the environment that he was in with the Dursleys. Uh-huh. Right. He never got any gifts. He was what everything he was given was given as a because they needed to. Right. The clothing on his back were all hand me downs or from or like just things that were left on the street. All of his possessions were not were given to him because they were they needed to be or haphazardly. They were never given to them to him like out of meaning or caring. Okay. Yeah. 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 And so even from year one. When Hagrid gets him all of his school supplies mm-hmm. and then gifts him Hedwig, 
Mm-hmm. Hedwig is like his first friend that he's had that he can connect with, right? Hag- yeah. Like before, uh, before he meets Hermione and Ron, he has Hedwig, and yeah. he treasures Hedwig, right? And there's Hedwig. There's uh, his first room that McGonagall gifts him that he cherishes. There's uh, the presents that he he gets from the Weasleys. Mm-hmm. Um, it's more. Pro- predominant in the books and in the movies but he does yeah, get yeah, yeah. presents from the weasleys right and so all of those things are things that he keeps and he treasures and that is how he knows that these people care about him that is how he understands that they will do what is necessary to prove to him that he is valuable that he matters that he is loved um, yeah and that's kind of how i how how he sees a lot of his relationships with um, not only just Hagrid, but like with Hermione, with Ron, even with Ginny. Yeah. Yeah. So receiving gifts for Harry. Okay. Uh, for Dumbledore, I I actually had him as um, also, well, actually, no, I had him as uh, words of affirmation as well. Oh, nice. Yeah, I had him as words of affirmation. I was torn, though. I will say. I will say I was torn. I I almost Between had it this, as that and quality what? time. Mm, okay. Quality time. Um, so I think... But okay. Yeah, so the reason why I went with words of affirmation, though, is because of the way that he talks to Harry, or really talks to anyone, and how sincere and the great intent in which he speaks, right? So he is always making sure that while he can't give Harry... While he refuses to give Harry the whole picture, Harry always knows that Dumbledore thinks of him as worth having these conversations with. Mm. He's always letting those around him know, like, this is something I want to say. This is something that I am choosing to share with you because I value you. Right. It's very intentional. Mm -hmm. I'd agree with that. I think the reason why I didn't say gifts for Harry is because I always saw people giving Mm -hmm. him gifts as kind of this, the knee jerk reaction that people often have or the confusion about how to operate with someone that has been so disprivileged and kind of Mm. giving Harry gifts is in some ways like the lowest hanging, most obvious fruit because he's spent so much time going without. So I almost feel like it's kind of this like insecure outpouring of like, here's how I will show you that I'm different than the people who raise you or I'm different than everybody else. And less of like, Harry's love language and that I think if his love language was gifts, he would also be giving gifts or like, I'm not saying it's not, but I guess I I saw his lack of participation in the love language as more of an indication that they're doing it kind of like out of a knee jerk reaction to like, how do you handle an orphan? Yeah, like, I mean, I thought about I them? thought about that too, but the reason why I still think it is his love language is because I don't think this love language it has to do necessarily with like it it definitely takes into account the thought behind the gift and mm-hmm. while that may be knee jerk reactions all of the gifts were thoughtful they weren't yeah they were thoughtful and they were meaningful but i think what's more important here is how harry is how harry received them how harry saw them mm. and the impact it had on him and i think mm. that's what the that's maybe what the difference is there is that I think because it did matter so much to him and because he could remember every little gift that he had received yeah. from everyone and they all have such huge 
they have a a place in his life, right? He right. uses all of them. He cares for all of them actively. It is always they're always a part of his story. Yeah. That I think it makes the argument that even if they were given out of a knee jerk reaction to shower someone who who was underprivileged, that's not how Harry saw it. That's not his perspective. Okay. I mean, you convinced me. That's a compelling argument. Yeah. But uh, yeah. So you know. Wow, guys. What an emotional journey. I almost (laughs) cried. Um, A lot. I almost cried a lot. Wow. I mean, I think, I guess I just kind of want to close on like a discussion of like why these stories have such power is like, despite all of the JK Rowling BS that is absolute trash, like these stories have such a place in my heart Mm -hmm. um, and are so defining and like can still to this day, like, get me emotional and like get me to that place and as you grow up as you grow out of this kind of age bracket in some ways I think it that becomes even more special I mean if you take the whole reason why I chose this episode is like how much and from the time I read these books Dumbledore reminded me of my grandpa when I was four years old and now my grandpa is gone and when I read these books or when I watch these movies I go back to that place you know, and like yeah. you cannot undo that writing. And so I think for the idea that I mean, I'm, I'm conflicted about the idea of separating the art from the artist. But I think if something makes you feel yeah. a certain way, you should let it. I agree with that. And I, I think for me, you know, like these books are are why I love reading so much. And for yeah. me, reading is a way that I deal with stress. It's my escape for a long time before I had the amazing friends that I have, like books were like my friends. Books are how I expressed emotion, how I processed complex humanity and theories and like all of these things. Like that's how I, that's how I experienced life for a long time. And these books were a huge part of that. I grew up with Harry. I grew up with Harry. Yeah. And I understood his his anger and his frustration in book five, and I understood his sacrifice and his indecisiveness in book seven. And <sighs> it will always be a part of who I am. It will always be a part of my life, and I can't wait to share that with my children one day. But yeah, beautiful. These books did something. Well, listeners, thank hey, you for wow, coming okay. on this journey. This is a lot of okay. Uh, thank next you week so much we'll probably be more upbeat but sometimes you just need a little solemn moment so thank you for joining us yeah yeah we appreciate you being here and i hope you enjoyed it so yeah thank you so much see you next week bye okay, bye where are you going you don't leave at the end of a marvel movie before you do anything else follow us on instagram twitter and tumblr at parasocial angst you can tell us what you think about the episode, write Hina love letters. What can I say? I'm a Leo. I run on praise and adoration. But you can send Momi your original fanfiction. She lives for that shit. I do live for that shit. But until next time. Have a snack. Call your therapist. As bona fide professionals, we have to give you the disclaimer. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Not to mention that everything we say in this show is a reflection of our own personal views and does not necessarily reflect the views of Daydreamer Network. Precisely. For example, we think Buffy should have ended up with Angel. Daydreamer might be on Team Spike. That's not our business. Listen at your own risk.